Hello and welcome to the Sound of History podcast. My name is Nick. My name is Mika. And Ajax is right in front of us. He's just such a good boy. <laughs> just sitting between us. He wants to be a part of it. Oh. Oh, don't knock over the... Oh, okay. <laughs> well, this is a music history podcast where I am teaching Mika and apparently also Ajax the whole story of music history. And I will pet Ajax and he will get really excited about scratches and then he's going to start scratching his little face on our mics and then you're going to get annoyed. I'm going to get annoyed. I don't know that anyone else cares, but I will be annoyed. <laughs> Follow us on Twitter, I guess. I've tweeted a couple times in the past month. Twitter.com slash sound of history underscore. We can pay $8 a month and be verified now. That is so dumb. <laughs> Honestly, like, people are going to not want to go with it and be verified, and then it's going to, like, increase the amount of, like, scams. Yes, but also the amount of jokes, and that's fun. I've already seen someone who has a verified account called Elon's Inner Monologue, and he's just making random, like... (laughs) assertion like i don't know like it's hard to explain it and it's, it's just, verified now yes it's verified now See, it's just elon's so inner monologue it is yeah like that's funny but that's so dumb like he literally broke the system now like yet another news source which i use the term very loosely is like even more unbelievable because it could literally be anybody yeah like that's terrifying that's a yeah I hate that. I hope it means people stop looking to Twitter verified people for their news and opinions. Because just it's it's kind of always been this. Just because they have a check mark doesn't mean they're right about things. But you think they are because they have a check mark. So hopefully now people will start not trusting them more. I don't know that the majority of people will feel that way. Yeah. Feel like the people that want to get their news sources from Twitter are going to continue i don't know i just think that's dumb well anyway follow us on twitter where we are very active and we're not going to be verified thank you very much eight dollars a month that's too much money to tweet one tweet every month (laughs) okay well before we get to the music history and we've got a fun long episode today so stick with us But first, we're going to let Mika do her show within a show where she just talks about whatever she wants. It's Mika is the host now. Mika is the host now. Hmm. There's not much going on in the life of Mika. Any new music you like? How'd you feel about Taylor? I like it. No one's favorite is Midnight Rain. Midnight Rain is the best one, man. <laughs> no one's favorite is Midnight Rain. I don't know that I have a favorite. I think they're all kind of meh. But you might be going to the concert, so you'll get to give a report and a review on how it was. I'm sure it's going to be absolutely amazing. Yeah. There's no world where it's not amazing. All right, well... Ooh, 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 ooh. What? Espresso tonics are my new favorite thing. Have I? Have we talked about this? No. Oh my gosh, they're so good. You would absolutely hate it. It's just espresso and tonic water. It, yeah. 
That sounds terrible. And like generally like some orange, like fresh orange. Sometimes you get like some herbs in there. A little bit of simple syrup. Oh my gosh. It's light. It's a little bit bubbly. It has coffee. It plays off like the fruity notes in a lot of coffees. It is phenomenal. It is my new favorite coffee drink, except for it's very summery and it's getting into winter and I, I want to have like a winter espresso tonic. I don't know what all that would entail. Probably like orange and spice. Yeah. All spice. Oh my gosh. I bet. Oh, I need to find a recipe for that. Not that I have like espresso, but anyway. You do in the lobby. That's not for anything (laughs) that's supposed to have subtle flavors. All right. We can no longer the host now. Yeah. Okay. We can no longer the host now. Do you remember the last thing we talked about? Wasn't that long ago? Maybe you'll remember. Mm, punk. Yep. Cool. <laughs> we talked about early punk, kind of the first wave of punk that was like mid to late 70s. Talked about a lot of the bands that it kind of came out, that came out of that scene and then inspired it. We're not really going to. What's your recap? What's your brief description of what punk is? Less musical, more abstract. Okay. Poetry. Ish, yeah. It's more and just or loud. yeah. It's like I don't think it's or. I think it is just loud. <laughs> to be punk, you had to be loud. And like, not mainstream at all. Yeah. That's fair. Well, if you want to hear a more more detailed description of what it is and where it came from. And or accurate. No, that was fairly accurate. Go listen to our last episode about punk. We talk about New York and all of that fun stuff. So we didn't talk about them all that much. We mentioned them a little bit. But there is one band that looms larger than almost any other band in the early days of punk. The Ramones. Do you know anything about the Ramones? Probably. Okay, I would say, like, other than what we talked about last time, but you don't remember that, so... No. Yeah, (laughs) I think so. I didn't realize when I started writing this, but there's so much to the story of the Ramones, both personally and musically, so this is a really long episode. So just buckle up. Hubba hubba. (laughs) It's not the response I expected. I'm mostly telling you because the listeners can see how long this is before they press play, but you can't. So you get told ready. me it was long. That's last why you week, made tea. And you told me it was long two days ago, and then today. I'm just reading the script, man. Okay, don't get mad Aww, at me. Past you thought to tell me that it was long. Yeah, that's nice. So, like we typically do when we tell the story of bands, we'll jump back in time to talk about each member's early life. Yes. So you got your sound effects ready? Just plugged in and finger on the button. I'm ready to go. (laughs) Okay. Jeffrey Hyman was born in 1951 in Queens. Oh, no. That's, well, I was going to say that, like, kids don't know what a Hyman is. But then I feel like, I feel like maybe they, they did. 
if, we, if everyone was like obsessed with virginity, you know, I don't know. I don't know. He was born with an improperly formed twin growing on his back, which was surgically removed. I don't know why that's relevant, but it's here, so I said it. Wow. He attended Forest Hills High School in Queens, where he would eventually meet the other members of the Ramones. Uh, hold on. I have more questions about the twin. Well, I don't have any answers. So. Was it like conjoined, but like yeah. dead? I think so, yeah. That's sad. Or improperly formed, so never alive, probably. Okay. Wow. So Weird. He's, he's in high school now. He was a decent student, but was an outcast in school. As a teenager, he was diagnosed with OCD and schizophrenia. Wow. Yeah. I feel like there has to be, like, back then to be diagnosed with schizophrenia mm-hmm. that early, I feel like there were some pretty yeah. strong signs. For most of his teenage years, he played the drums because he idolized Keith Moon, who was, like, a very wild but one of the best rock drummers from the band The Who. Okay. Before switching to guitar at 17. In 1972, Jeffrey started to play in a glam punk band called Sniper under the stage name Jeff Starship. I wonder why he changed his last name. (laughs) It's also very close to Jefferson Starship, which is already a band. That's funny. He initially started to love music because it gave him an escape from the mess of his parents' divorce. His mother remarried, but his stepfather died in a car accident. So he turned to music to escape kind of all that was happening in his life. I feel really sorry for this kid. Yeah. He was eventually replaced in Sniper, so he started a new band with two of his friends, Douglas Colvin and John Cummings, and he joined as the drummer. At the time, Douglas was already going by the stage name Dee Dee Ramone, taken from a stage name that Paul McCartney used briefly when the Silver Beatles toured Scotland. What is the Silver Beatles? That was just the Beatles before they were the Beatles. Oh. They just dropped the silver. Weird. I think it was the, I think Paul would go by like Ramon something maybe when they like checked into hotels, I think. I don't know. There's like mixed, mixed stories here, but he took it from a Paul McCartney thing. Is Paul McCartney dead? No. No. He's the one who's still alive. Allegedly alive. Yes. Okay. He's the one who also might have died in like 69 and been replaced. Right. We have a sound of conspiracies on that. So you can go listen to that one. <laughs> okay. So you you Jeff. tracking? Yeah. Jeffrey Starship is now in a band with a guy named Douglas who's going by the name Dee Dee Ramone. Okay. Okay. So the, uh, so the other two guys also took Ramone as their surname and called their band Ramones. So, Jeffrey Hyman, also known as Jeff Starship, forever... Also known as Jeff Ramone. No. He forever became known as Joey Ramone. I don't know why he dropped the Jeff and went with Joey instead, but he did. So, he's now Joey Ramone. That does sound better. Mm-hmm. All right. We're going back in time. I have to hydrate. <laughs> Douglas Colvin was born in 1951 in Virginia. His father was an American soldier, and his mother was a German woman that he presumably met during World War II. 
His father's military service required them to move frequently, as is typical of military children. They lived in West Berlin for a while when Douglas was a kid. Because of the frequent moves, he was pretty lonely and rarely had any good close friends. When his parents separated, he stayed in Berlin with his mom until he was 15. Then he moved with his mother and his sister to Forest Hills in Queens to escape his alcoholic father. His father was apparently very abusive. Yikes. In Forest Hills, he met John Cummings and Thomas, oh boy, Erdely? It's E-R-D-E-L-Y-I. Erdely? I have no clue. Okay. Well, he met John and Thomas, who were playing in a band called Tangerine Puppets. I like that name. Is it better than Sniper? No, it's different than Sniper. Both okay. are solid names. Okay, that's good. We got two good names. That's rare. <laughs> Douglas met John in a building where Douglas worked in the mailroom and John was working on construction for the building. Douglas and John immediately became good friends because they were both social outcasts. And one day they agreed to both cash their paychecks and buy musical instruments. After John auditioned to join the band television and was rejected, he suggested Douglas and their new friend Jeffrey start a band. There's a lot of names that are around. You still, you still tracking with me? Uh, <laughs> so we mostly, know Jeffrey, right? We know Jeffrey. We know Jeff. We now we know, know Douglas. We know Dee Dee. Yes, and Douglas is became good friends with a guy named John that we haven't met yet, but okay. we're about to. John. John and Douglas are good friends. They would like hang out a lot, smoke a lot of weed. Who met in the mailroom? John and Douglas. Okay. And then John tried to audition for the band Television. Do you remember them? We talked about them last year, last no. episode. They they we played a song that you hated from them. Okay. They're like early early punk. Like their singer started the whole like leather jacket punk aesthetic. I can respect that. Anyway, John auditioned for them, didn't get in. So John came back to Douglas and he was like, hey, you you and me and this other guy, Jeffrey, Jeff Starship, we it should start a band. John's idea. Yes. Good job, John. Originally, Douglas, or Dee Dee, was the singer, but he quickly learned that his voice couldn't handle it without getting shredded. So Jeffrey, or Joey, Ramon, took over the vocal duties. So Joey originally joined as a drummer and then couldn't play drums and sing at the same time. So now oh. they need a drummer. Why can't you do that? There's a lot of <laughs> a lot of people that can do that. Yeah, but they're not good musicians. So, so that's even more like you don't have to sound good. <laughs> that's true. Like literally this is the genre where you don't have to sound good. Listen, I'm sorry. I'm just I'm just throwing shade because um oh I want to say her name is Kara from Valley can is oh yeah Mwah. that's how I feel about that so they apparently started the band only about a week after Johnny and Douglas bought their instruments so they're not good they both doing. have already been playing things haven't they maybe not Dee Dee no Joey had been playing drums yeah. and guitar for a bit, yeah. but Dee Dee and John had not. They Dee Dee just bought and their John instruments. just bought their instruments. Yes. Okay. And then I guess John immediately tried out for television after buying his instrument, and they were like, no. And so he's like, we should do our own thing. 
Good Lord. I don't know okay. how he even got an audition, but you know, whatever. So that's how Dee Dee Ramone, who had the reputation for being the wildest member of the group, got started with his musical journey. After he relinquished vocal duties, he still played bass and served as the principal songwriter for the group. He also always started their songs with his signature one, two, three, four call. Every single one? That's so annoying. <laughs> yeah. I would hate that so I don't so know much. if it's like that on the, the records. I could be wrong. It better not be. But Can you imagine? in live performances, it was. That's awful. Yeah. Okay, we're going back in time. <laughs> Good one. Thanks. So Johnny was born in 1948 in Queens as the only son of a very strict construction worker. So Johnny said, quote, my father would get on these tangents about how he never missed a day's work. I broke my big toe the day I had to go pitch a little league game. And he's going, what are you, a baby? What did I do? Raise a baby? You go play. Toxic masculinity at its finest. And even though my toe was broken, I had to go pitch the game anyway. It was terrible. End quote. Yeah, not a good dad. I really feel like all of these children just need a hug. But instead, they got punk. Punk is good, too. While working various odd jobs, he met and became friends with Dee Dee. They'd often have lunch together and talk about their love of music, particularly a band called The Stooges. Do you remember them? No. They were in Detroit with Iggy Pop. They were like, I would say, the first punk band. Anyway, go listen to the punk episode if you want a refresher on Iggy and The Stooges. So this was at a very low point in Johnny's life. After the Tangerine Puppets broke up, he was kind of directionless and became scary even to himself. He would throw televisions off of rooftops near people. He would throw bricks through windows, just like angry kid lashing out type of stuff. The whole time, Thomas kept encouraging him to make more music, but he didn't. Then he had a moment of awakening. We haven't really talked about Thomas much, but he's the guy with the funky last name from earlier. He was in Tangerine Puppets, I think. There with were them. a lot of funky last names. The Eraldi Eral guy. What? <laughs> okay. I don't know what that meant. So this is Johnny's moment of awakening. He said, quote, Then all of a sudden, one day everything changed. I was 20. I was walking down the block near my neighborhood, and I heard a voice. I don't know what it was. God, maybe. It asked, quote, what are you doing with your life? Is this what you are here for? It was a spiritual awakening, and I just immediately stopped everything. It was all clear cut right then, Aww. end quote. Yeah, turn his life around. In 1973, he officially joined with Dee Dee and Jeffrey slash Joey to become the Ramones. Douglas became Dee Dee Ramone and played bass. Jeffrey became Joey Ramone on drums and Johnny became Johnny Ramone on guitar. Dee Dee eventually stopped singing, and Joey took over, which meant they needed a new drummer. <laughs> so we've got the three Ramones. At the time, Johnny's former bandmate, Thomas Erdelyi, or however you said it, <laughs> exactly, was serving as the group's manager. When they did auditions for a new drummer, Thomas would often sit at the drums to demonstrate how the songs should be played. Oh, sweet babies. They all quickly realized that Thomas was a better drummer than anyone that they had auditioned. So Thomas became Tommy Ramone and joined the group. 
a friend of theirs got them time in a rehearsal studio in New York City so that they could practice. All right, going back in time, I think, for one last time. So you got to make it a good one. That actually was pretty good. Mm -hmm. <laughs> that was a solid one. <laughs> Thomas Erdelyi was born in 1949 in Budapest, Hungary. His family survived the Holocaust by being hidden by neighbors. But many of his family members were killed by Nazis. In 1957, his family fled Hungary during the Hungarian Revolution and settled in Forest Hills, Queens. He formed a band called the Tangerine Puppets with his friend from high school, Johnny. After graduating high school, he got a job at Record Plant Studio as an assistant engineer. Through that job, he worked on one of Jimi Hendrix's albums. So he's, he's moving up. That explains why he knew rhythm yeah <laughs> he's also it seems like the one who kind of has more of his life together at this point a little bit more of a direction then when his old friend johnny who thomas always encouraged to keep doing music suggested starting a band thomas stepped in as manager thomas said about those early days of trying to figure out what the ramones even were quote what we were doing was almost like a concept I realized that what you needed wasn't musicianship. What you needed was ideas. Anything that worked, we kept, end quote. I mean, he's not wrong. <laughs> yeah, true. They played their first concert as the Ramones on March 30th, 1974 at Performance Studios in Manhattan. Their songs were all super fast and super short, none of them longer than two minutes. Someone who saw that early show said, quote, Oh my God, they were raw. The Ramones were so bad. Forget about it. It was painful. That's End funny. <laughs> In these early days, they developed their trademarks. Tommy played drums like a guitarist. He said he locked on to Johnny's guitar playing and just copied that with the drums. Not exactly sure how that works, but it sounds cool. I guess like this drum pattern? Yeah, maybe. Maybe not like letting the guitar do the rhythm and he just kind of feels, I don't know. Johnny played his guitar in a chainsaw style with all downstrokes. Joey sang in a strange kind of yelp. <sighs> <laughs> At the end of their first show, Dee Dee stood on the neck of his bass and broke it. Which that is tracks. not what you want to do when you are broke. Oh my god. Here's one of the songs that they played. It's not them playing it. It was from one of their albums, but it's called I Don't Want to Go Down to the Basement. And it's okay. literally that. That, that is the concept of the song. Ooh, we got a crop top. Hello. That's Dee Dee. I like your belly button, Dee Dee. This is awful. Well, that's I don't want to go down to the basement. I don't think that's what they're saying. It, according to them, it is. I don't know that they're. But that's no. Dee Dee's the crop top. Joey's the big tall guy. Johnny's that guy, and then that's Tommy. Just so you can put a name to the, I like the face to the names. 
I it, like men that wear crop tops. And that was back when that was like not even like a common thing. Yep. It's still not, but it was less common. Yep. I think. I don't know. Maybe in that 70s style that I don't know. I've never seen an old picture of a man in a crop top. I feel like I've seen it in like the 80s maybe. Like more workout type gear. I don't know. Anyway. I don't know, but I vibe with it. In August of 1974, they got their first break into the scene when they were allowed to play at CBGB's. Do you know, do you remember CBGB? No. <laughs> it's the big bar in Manhattan, I think the East Village, where everyone got their start, basically. Okay. Stood for country bluegrass and blues. Right. A lot of bands saw CBGB as like a rehearsal space. Mark Bell, who was a drummer, saw some of the early shows that the Ramones played there, and he said, quote, they weren't fully developed image-wise. John and Joey were in satin pants, and Dee Dee had these shirts with the collar buttoned high. The next time I saw them, they were in brand new leather jackets. They were sloppy, they had to stop songs and go back to recount the intro. They'd argue about songs, but that's just how it was. We were there to hone our skills, end quote. All right. <laughs> I just can't imagine seeing a band, and they just stop in the middle, it's like, wait, wait, let's... One, two, three, four. <laughs> so I have to recount the rhythm. Like, I can't imagine that happening. God, that's so funny. Their first set that they played at CBGB lasted 17 minutes. And the owner said about their show, quote, they were the most untogether band I'd ever heard. They kept starting and stopping, equipment breaking down and yelling at each other. But they turned out to be a good draw for some reason, so he kept having them back. Yeah, because it's a show. Yeah. <laughs> you never know what they're going to do. Yeah. The Ramones had this idea to have one new song every time that they met to practice. So by early 1975, along with establishing their image and kind of figuring out their sound a little bit more, they also had a rather large repertoire of original music. Which is why a lot of it was just, I don't want to go down to the basement. I was like, going to say, I understand simplistic. now. By the middle of 1975, they had earned a residency at CBGB and people started to take a little bit more notice of their sets. A few of the rock record labels were even coming down to see them. They were about to make it. In late 1975, Sire Records signed them to a recording contract. They originally offered a singles deal. They'd make a few songs as part of a New York's finest compilation kind of thing. But the Ramones manager said that he could make an album for the same amount of money as a single. He said, quote, Seymour wanted to make two singles, but I said I could make a whole album for the same cost. What's the point in setting up the Ramones for five songs when you can get an album? There had been inklings in the British press that something was happening in New York, and Sire felt that if we could make a cheap album and get our money back in Europe, it wasn't a risky proposition. I don't quote. understand how it would be the same amount of money for more recording. I think probably just like maybe you had to rent a studio in blocks and he just knew that their songs were a minute 45 seconds. He can churn out a whole album's worth in that and they it's not like they're going to be doing multiple takes like they're just going to get in there and just bang them out like they could record an album in 30 minutes so yeah. maybe it's that kind of thing i don't know i don't i don't actually know the reasoning but okay. that's what led to their album hmm. 
The band spent a week in Plaza Sound Studios, which was a wide open space above Radio City Music Hall. A week. Yeah. Which is where the Rockettes practiced. They had four days to record and a week to master the recordings. In terms of the money pouring into the industry at the time, the album cost basically nothing to record. It actually used very top-of-the-line equipment, but the recording sounded super raw, which was done on purpose by the producer. (laughs) I feel like I hate them. (laughs) Like, I like them. I'm happy that they succeed. I feel like they deserve something good in life. But... I have something against music that doesn't sound good. Okay. I guess call me hoity-toity, like whatever. I don't get it. I like the Ramones music. I like a lot of it. I think a lot of it's really good. When do they get good? <laughs> I, <laughs> maybe it's just not for you. I mean, I don't want to go down to the basement isn't one of their best, so. Like, that's just so funny to me. But like, you can't like, get mad at them for having a raw sound. Like, that's. It would make no sense if you record the Ramones and then you come out with a super polished sounding production. Like that's not that's not the scene they were in. They needed that kind of raw, I get it. feel. I totally get it. I just like a little bit more intention to be put into things. I guess <laughs> that was intentional though, because they had top of the line equipment. They could have made it super nice, and they sound. made it sound bad. <laughs> they made it sound raw. Ah. <laughs> It took a while for the album to catch on, but once it did, the album became iconic, both in punk and in the world. The album essentially defined what punk rock was. The album, which was released in February of 1976... Oh, sorry, that's not... That's just the sentence. The album released in February of 1976. Dee Dee did most of the songwriting on the album, and most of the songs were under two and a half minutes long. Critics immediately loved the album. Which I feel like is rare. I'm shocked. Yeah. <laughs> I'm actually shocked. Yeah. Shocked for two reasons. One, that it, according to you, it doesn't sound good. But also, I feel like most of these like iconic cutting edge band, like bands yeah. who do new things, they're not, not reviewed well, re- well. Yeah, they're not the well first accepted. Time they're yeah. It's People not until don't like later change. where Rolling Stone is like, oh, we got it wrong. Sorry. Yeah. Like that's normally what happens. Listen, I haven't heard this album, so like maybe I do like it, but it's just yeah. weird. It's weird. Well, Rolling Stone, when it came out, said, quote, It is constructed almost entirely of rhythm tracks of an exhilarating intensity rock and roll has not experienced since its earliest days. End quote. Despite the good critic reviews, it was not a commercial success. That it, is just so funny. <laughs> it only reached 111 on the charts. That's a good number. Yeah. Neither of the singles charted. There were two of them. But the legacy that it had was immense. The producer said that he understood that later when massive bands like Soundgarden and Green Day started talking about how influential that album was for them. Here is a song that you definitely know from that album called Blitzkrieg Bop. Yeah.
have been a background singer for the Ramones. <laughs> so funny. All right, well, that's Blitzkrieg Bop. Boop. One of their, it's probably not, their best it's not, song. It's not Bop, it's Boop. <laughs> you have to, as, as little of a time <laughs> that you could Boop, Boop, Boop. After this album, the band started to play outside of New York for the first time. They played in Ohio for their first show out of New York City and met members of other prominent punk bands. Why Ohio? I don't know. <laughs> but their tour of England in 1976 really showed their potential. They played a few club dates and met members of the Sex Pistols and The Clash. Do you want to know what's in my head right now? What? Ohio, Ohio. <laughs> Good. You're welcome. I saw a My Chemical Romance tweet earlier, and they said, we're aware that some people are a little bit upset that our songs seem to glorify sadness, but we think there are other emo bands that are doing far worse because some of their songs... No, it's romanticized sadness. Like Some of their songs romanticize Ohio. <laughs> what? I mean, there's like, I, Ohio is for lovers by Hawthorne Heights. There's like... <laughs> <laughs> it's funny the shade <laughs> anyway so they're in London they're playing a few club gigs they're meeting the punk scene there and people are loving them uh, their, por- their performances really exhilarated the burgeoning punk scene in the UK the Ramones also weren't afraid to give out advice to the up and coming punk bands that they met along the way I'm sure that they weren't they gave advice to the Clash and the Sex Pistols while they were in England <laughs> Johnny Ramone said, quote, we weren't against anybody. I thought the Ramones, the Sex Pistols, and the Clash were all going to become the major groups, like the Beatles and the Rolling Stones, and it would be a better world, end quote. But then later, Johnny Ramone started to get a little bit annoyed with the Sex Pistols' antics. They started to curse on live television, inspire riots, spit on reporters, and all of that culminated in Sid Vicious, their bassist, getting arrested for for allegedly murdering his girlfriend. Three of those things are much worse than one of them. (laughs) Is cursing on live television the... No, that's the unforgivable thing. (laughs) How dare you? We'll talk about that in the Sex Pistols episode. It was a major moment in the history of British broadcasting. I just, uh, okay. (laughs) They also, there's like a story about the first time they met, for some reason, it was either, I don't know which way it went, but either the Ramones just started like peeing in beer and giving it to the Sex Pistols or the other way around. I can't remember. Oh my God. Just to like mess with them or something. I don't know. Oh my God. Yeah. I can't remember exactly how that story went, but I think it was the Ramones did it to the Sex Pistols as kind of like a, (laughs) no, no, no. It was the other way. Cause I saw like Joey was on a late night show and he was telling the story about that. And it was just Johnny Rotten being rotten. What the hell? Anyway. But all of those antics did serious damage to the punk image. Instead of being revolutionary and inspirational, the Sex Pistols made it evil and reprehensible to the general public. So, Joey started to get a little bit annoyed with them. I mean, yeah. Yeah, and just Johnny Rotten's attitude in general. Or was it having to drink his piss? (laughs) I I feel like that would would be... Yeah. 
Yeah. I'll have to look over that story and see what it actually was and put it on a bring back correction corner. Goodness. The Ramones released their next two albums in 1977. Their second. Who? Al- yeah. <laughs> Dude. Their second album, which was called Leave Home, performed even worse than their first one. But it included a song called Pinhead that would become a staple of their live performances. Here is Pinhead. Am I watching... Oh, okay. (laughs) Am I watching someone recording their TV? Pinhead. Do you remember when you were explaining to me that all of their songs were really short because they said what they wanted to say and then it was done? Mm-hmm. I think it's because they make two minutes out of two phrases. <laughs> Maybe, but that's all they wanted to say was those two phrases. I don't want to be a pinhead. Pinhead. But no. Yeah. That's what they wanted to say. I don't want to be a peanhead. Okay. Just over and over and over. Their third album, called Rocket to Russia, reached number 49 on the charts and became their highest charting album, I think of all time. It featured two singles that both charted, their first two songs to ever do that. Hmm. Rockaway Beach reached number 66 and would be the highest charting song that they'd ever have. Here is... Rockaway Beach. There's a That's Rockaway Beach. Both of these albums kind of extended their sound, but it kept the same spirit as the first album. They didn't really change a lot. But they did start to explore some mental health themes, and a lot of the songs were drawn from things that Dee Dee and Joey had experienced in their lives. Mm-hmm. The band toured steadily, playing over 150 nights a year. They weren't a big band, so they didn't have a bus. They'd travel hours to shows in a small van packed together. This, along with exhaustion, led to quite a few fights. Well, and it all- sounds like they were fighting from the very beginning. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> all of it started to get a little bit too much for Tommy, who was the manager turned drummer. Yeah. Once in an L.A. hotel, Johnny yelled at him and said that the Ramones were his band, not Tommy's. 
According to Tommy, the others always feared that Tommy would for some reason try to take over the band, which he had absolutely no intention of doing. Why are they ganging up on Tommy? Tommy was the most chill out of everyone. It's probably just because he was the smartest and understood the industry the most and arguably the most talented. So they all just thought that eventually he would just kind of take it over. But we'll learn through this story that Johnny has a little bit of a complex about being the leader and being in charge. So oh, okay. It's not so surprising it's warranted. To me that, that Johnny, no, Johnny, not Tommy. Oh, okay, okay. Yeah, Johnny is the one who's like wants to be in charge of everything. In 1978, Tommy played his last show with the Ramones at CBGB. He stayed on as their producer for the next album, and they got Mark Bell, who went by Marky Ramone, to replace him. Marky was the drummer for one of the founding punk bands called Richard Hell and the Void Voids. <laughs> Void Doids. <laughs> okay. So he fit in with the sound and the aesthetic of this like punk scene that they were already doing. This band, Change, also sparked a change in their style. Their next album, Road to Ruin, featured some new instruments for them, like acoustic guitar. Wow. And they even sang some ballads, and it featured their first songs over two minutes long. Wow. The album wasn't a commercial success, but it featured one of their best-known songs called I Want to Be Sedated, which is this song after the album. I mean, if you don't know it after this, then you're not going to know it. Who's all behind them? This is a funny music video. All right. Well, that's how I want to be sedated. They're just sitting there. They're not even singing along. They're just sitting there and everyone's acting crazy behind them. That's a vibe. (laughs) (coughs) I get what they were saying. All right. You're finally catching on to the the Ramones hype. Well, yeah, because they're saying something more than I'm not a peen head. (laughs) That was profound. All right. No. They don't want to be a pinhead anymore. After they appeared in a movie for the first time called Rock and Roll High School in 1979. That sounds god awful and I want to watch it. <laughs> legendary producer Phil Spector became interested in them. Do you remember Phil Spector? I know Phil Spector. Okay. You remember what he ended up doing? The Wall of Sound. Yeah, but also... Murder. Yes. <laughs> He produced their next album in 1980, and there's a long-standing rumor that he held Johnny Ramone at gunpoint in the studio and forced him to play a guitar riff over and over until he got it right. These kids have dealt with enough abuse. Like, <laughs> I just cannot. This was also past Phil Spector's prime, so people aren't as interested in what he's doing anymore. 
Like I would normally hear that and be like, oh, so that album was a massive success, but it just wasn't because people don't really care about Phil Spector at this point. Hmm. But the album would become their highest charting album, but Johnny didn't like it. He said it was watered down Ramones and he preferred their he preferred their harder, more aggressive stuff. Johnny was the de facto leader of the band, even though many people thought that it was Joey. Joey was the one up front singing and all that kind of stuff, but Johnny ruled the band with an iron fist. He'd issue fines if members were late or too drunk. That's so dumb. He would yell and slap people. Marky, who's the new drummer, has said that they regularly heard Johnny yelling at and slapping his girlfriend in the hotel. Someone said, quote, Dee Dee was terrified of Johnny because Johnny would punch him in the face. Okay. It yeah. would always be after the show about something like, you did a B major when you should have done a C minor. Oh my God, arrest this man. <laughs> I'd stand outside the dressing room. Inside, you'd hear glass shattering and bodies slamming into walls. Why are you outside quote. the dressing room? <laughs> He's just one guy. Get your crew together. And le- like... I don't even. I don't know who said that. It was just someone's account. So he could have been like an employee who was just afraid. There's like a power balance there, so he could have been like a roadie or something. Oh my god. Joey started seriously dating. This is Joey, the singer, not Johnny, the jerk. It gets confusing, so I'm trying to like clarify that. Yeah. (laughs) Joey started seriously dating a girl named Linda, and she would come with them on tour sometimes. Also, Joey seems like a little sweetheart. Like, he's just a nice, he's the singer, so you would think he'd be the crazy person, like the singer of a punk band, but he seems like pretty, like, chill and just, like, just hanging out. So the others would notice that Johnny, the jerk, and Linda, Joey's girlfriend, started flirting and would disappear for times together. The band tried to tell Joey, but he just wouldn't listen. He was too loyal. Soon, Linda left Joey... And Johnny left his girlfriend, and they started living together in Manhattan. They didn't tell Joey, because Johnny was afraid he'd leave the band if he found out. This is so incredibly manipulative. (laughs) He said, quote, I had never really gotten along with Joey, but I didn't want to hurt him either. We tried our best, but you can't live a lie. End quote. Uh, Eventually, He's actively trying to live a lie. (laughs) What an asshole. Eventually, Johnny and Linda would get married. Joey never got over that relationship. He was in love with Linda, and you could hear the heartbreak in the songs that he wrote, like, the KKK took my baby away. Oh, my God. (laughs) And he started to drink heavily, and he developed a cocaine addiction. He He later said, quote, Johnny crossed the line. He destroyed the relationship and the band right there, end quote. But he didn't leave the band. And I didn't What's finish this livelihood? sentence. Yeah. But I apparently there's a reason that I had because I wrote because he thought and then just ended the sentence. I don't, so I don't know what that's supposed to say. Probably he thought that Johnny would like kill him. I think it's said like because he thought that they had more to do or something because Joey was always about like we're doing something big and like we're reforming rock and roll, like we're doing this new thing. So I think he thought they just had more to do with the Ramones. Okay. And it was like bigger than his feelings. Oh, sweet boy. I think, I think Joey is also the one who has OCD and schizophrenia. Yes. Yeah. And then Johnny was the one who threw televisions at people. Huh. (laughs) Hmm. 
Meanwhile, they released their sixth album in 1981, which continued the trend of taking them farther from the traditional punk roots. Johnny always maintained that was a label decision to try and turn them radio-friendly. Their direction now was more heavy metal than punk. The next album in 1983 brought them back to the harder punk style. And after that album, Marky was fired due to his alcoholism. He was replaced by Richie Ramone, who, according to Joey, put the soul back into the Ramones. We're not going to really talk about it. There's several like lineup changes. We're not really going to talk about the new guys. They just, they're there, then they're not. Aren't we all? <laughs> they released their first album with Richie in 1984, and Tommy came back to produce it. It was a return to their traditional sound. Go, Tommy. But pretty quickly, Richie had financial conflicts with Johnny, and he left the band. He was briefly replaced by the drummer of Blondie, but that was a disaster, and he was fired after two shows. Wow. So Marky, who is now sober, rejoined the group. Go Marky! Yeah. <laughs> Holy cow! Marky you seems like a cool guy, too. You don't too. hear that, like, in no. this era and rock stars. Like, are yeah. you kidding me? Yeah. What a success story. Please just leave it there. Don't tell me <laughs> anything else about this man. No, Marky's a cool guy. Hell yeah. Go Marky. There's a video I watched of, it was like a punk panel from early 2000s and marky ramon is there with johnny rotten from the sex pistols and like the singer of minor threat and like a, a lot of other major like punk artists from this early time and johnny rotten was just being johnny rotten would not let anyone talk was talking over everyone was arguing with everyone and marky you can just see him getting more and more frustrated and eventually he just snaps and starts like arguing with johnny like just shut up and let other people say something like these we're all legends here just let someone else talk for once snaps from it was marky. funny i like marky he's cool okay anyway they were set to release their 11th studio album and make it their big comeback but by this point, Dee Dee was really tired of the band. And he, well, I can't see if you put your face there. Ajax wants to be a part <laughs> of things. So Dee Dee was really tired of the band and clearly indicated that he wanted to leave. He'd show up with spiky hair and gold chains, just kind of breaking the aesthetic that they set. I'm here for <laughs> it. Hell yeah. Dee Dee is like a fashion icon. Yeah. Oh, just wait. He'd say that his new passion in life was to be a rap star. Oh. He'd also had a messed up life, but he had been dependent on hard drugs since that, since he was a kid. He'd mix his bipolar medication with cocaine. Uh-huh. He actually made good on his promise and released a kind of rap album in 1988 under the name D.D. King. It failed in every possible way that it could fail. Okay. And one critic called it one of the worst recordings of all time. Okay. You ready to hear a song called Funky yes. Man? Yes, I am. <laughs> Give it to me. Here is his music video for Funky Man. It is not good. <laughs> Just warning, it is quite. It's good so far. Because he hasn't started yet. A long Should make a D double R 
confidence. More like the drugs. all for funky man by dd king he's iconic <laughs> that you could tell me that that was an snl skit and i'd be like yes i'm here for it that's one of the most ridiculous things i've ever seen and i am i am fully in support of this man living his dream he's not hurting anybody no except for himself yeah but you know what that's his prerogative <laughs> Well, for the next album, Dee Dee didn't record bass, and he only showed up to do backing vocals. In 1989, he left the band, which caught the others completely off guard. Why? <laughs> I don't. He's been saying he wants to leave for like two years now. <laughs> I'm just like, what? He went on to start a few other punk bands that were similar to the Ramones, and he'd sometimes write for the Ramones, but he never rejoined the band. The band stayed together, hanging on by threads. Joey and Johnny's partnership fueled the band. They were the only two original members left at this point. But they didn't really like each other yeah, at all. That by doesn't this sound point. like it would work. They were politically at odds. Johnny was a deep conservative and Joey was a hardcore liberal. Which really surprises me that a punk superstar is like hardcore conservative. But I don't know. I mean... He, he. Never mind. I'm just going to keep my mouth shut. <laughs> in 1992, they moved to a new label for the first time in their career and released a new album that was supposed to be a big comeback after years of decline. Their single from that album called Poison Heart was actually a success. Here is Poison Heart. Costume design. that we have music videos to watch now and we've never mm-hmm. you know, this one is very weird I'm having with it it's very Halloween yeah everybody does have a poison heart alright well that's poison heart very different sound from Blitzkrieg Bop. 
1995, the band announced that they'd be disbanding. They released one final album called Adios Amigo and did a farewell tour at the end of 1995. Johnny set their last show for August 6, 1996 in Los Angeles. They were asked to play a big show in Argentina that everyone wanted to do, but Joey said that he couldn't because of health reasons. That really pissed off Johnny, who thought he was just being dramatic, so he decided to end the band. Screw you, Johnny. Just, (laughs) like, come on. Johnny said, quote, I said nothing to the other guys. I just walked out. It was the way I lived my life. Of course, I was really feeling loss of some sort. I just didn't want to admit it. End quote. Uh Uh-uh. I'm over him. I, uh -uh. (laughs) uh-uh. None of that. I'm not sorry for you. You're a total asshole. I'm, no. Well, here is them playing Blitzkrieg Bop at their last concert. Some great camera work on that. <laughs> Well, that's their last show. Sounds very similar to their early stuff. Mm-hmm. Well, it turns out that Joey had a pretty good reason to not want to go to Argentina. I'm sure he did. He had lymphoma in his bone marrow. Oh. Because of the treatment, he could barely get the stamina to even perform. Mm. But he also didn't feel comfortable confiding this information with his bandmates. Yeah, because they're asshole. Well, the Johnny one. Is. Yeah. <laughs> On July 20th, 1999, Joey, Johnny, Dee Dee, and Tommy, the original four, appeared together for an autograph signing. A couple of the later band members were also there, but that was the last time that the original four members of the group appeared together. Even through a sickness and treatment, Joey found time to write and record a solo album. Joey suffered from OCD, which caused him to hear voices when he didn't do something exactly right. In the early hours of December 31st, he heard voices and thought that he had not closed his chiropractor's door correctly, so he went to do that. He was walking the streets when he fell and broke his hip. The subsequent surgery meant that his cancer treatments had to be paused, and his Mm -hmm. condition steadily worsened. Marky, the replacement drummer, was the only one who visited him in the hospital. Mm. Marky called Johnny and said that he had to have had to visit. The window was closing. Let it close, replied Johnny. What? He's not my friend. Oh, my God. (laughs) On April 15th, 2001, family and friends gathered to his bedside. The doctor turned off the respirator. His brother, Mickey, played a U2 song that Joey really loved, and by the end of the song, Joey had passed away. He was only 49. Damn. Only Tommy, Richie and a later guy that we didn't talk about, were the only Ramones to attend his funeral. A few years later, when Wait, asked... Wait, Johnny came to the funeral? No, Tommy. Tommy, okay. Yeah. Of course Johnny didn't go. Well, yeah, that's why I was surprised. <laughs> it was Tommy Ritchie, who was the guy who took over for Mickey for a bit when he got was getting sober. Mikey? Yeah. Okay. Sure. I don't know. A few years later, when asked if he went to the funeral, Johnny said, quote, I was in California. 
I wasn't going to travel all the way to New York, but I wouldn't have gone anyway. I wouldn't want him coming to my funeral, and I wouldn't want to hear from him if I were dying. What an awful person. I'd only want to see my friends. Let me die and leave me alone. What quote. an actual awful person. Yeah. He's not great. But it sounds like that might have been a little bit for show, and he really did miss Joey and regret that he never reconnected with him. No. Uh-uh. I, why? Why would we believe that? I don't know. There's no reason to believe that. Yeah. I, I mean, I think... I think he genuinely didn't like Joey and Joey didn't like him, but I think he was just kind of nostalgic about like what they did together, which is, you know, happened. So he doesn't miss the person. No, probably not. But he did say later, quote, I'm not doing anything without Joey. I felt that was it. He was my partner, me and him. I miss that. End quote. I don't trust anything. (laughs) In In 2002, the band was inducted into the rock and roll hall of fame. Specifically, Johnny, Joey, Dee Dee, Tommy, and Marky. Or Mickey, whatever I've been calling him this whole time. Marky. Marky, okay. During the induction speech, Johnny thanked the normal people, the managers and promoters and all that stuff, along with President Bush and America. Okay. Marky thanked a lot of his earlier influences, people who were like in the room, like other musicians and stuff. Dee Dee only thanked and congratulated himself. <laughs> It was pretty great. He just walked up. He's like, I'd like to thank me and I'd like to congratulate myself. (laughs) Oh my God. Literally iconic. Tommy was the only one who even mentioned Joey. He he was the only one who like brought up that one of the founding members wasn't there and that like he missed him and like this was for him kind of thing. Green Day played a few of their songs and that was that. Eleven weeks after that ceremony, Dee Dee was found dead of a heroin overdose. Tracks. He had tried to stay sober on and off through the years, but he fell off the wagon at the end. In 1994, Dee Dee met a 16-year-old named Barbara in Argentina. don't do this, Dee Dee. They would eventually get married and stay married until Dee Dee's death. Uh. She was the one who found him in his home in Hollywood. Uh, I'm sorry, sweetheart. He had a small funeral, and the inscription on his tombstone read, quote, okay, I gotta go now, end quote. Again, <laughs> iconic. <laughs> Johnny, after the breakup, wrote a memoir and acted in a couple of different things, but he was also in the midst of his own health crisis. In the late 90s, Johnny had started having trouble urinating. He learned that he had prostate cancer, and it kept spreading. In 2004, the doctors told Linda, Joey's ex and Johnny's wife, that her husband was going to die. He wrote his autobiography in the midst of his cancer, and I think because he realized that he would probably die, he was super candid and open in it. He wrote, quote, I carried around fury and intensity during my career. I had an image, and that image was anger. I was the one who was scowling, downcast, and I tried to make sure I looked like that when I was getting my picture taken. The Ramones were what I, ha- what, the Ramones were what I was, and so I was that person so many people saw on that stage. While retirement seemed to soften me, the prostate cancer I was diagnosed with in 1997 did so even more. It changed me, and I don't know that I like how. It has softened me up, and I like the old me better. I don't even have the energy to be angry. He wrote at the end of his book, quote, We all have time limits, and mine came a little early. End quote. Johnny Ramone passed away on September 15, 2004, at the age of 55. Johnny gave up drinking before starting the Ramones, and he never did any drugs stronger than pot. So his death was super surprising to quite a lot of people. 
Karma is my boyfriend. Karma <laughs> is a god. Tommy Ramone started a bluegrass duo with his longtime girlfriend called Uncle Monk and quietly played in that band for about 10 years. I love that for you, Tommy. <laughs> Tommy's great. Until he passed away on July 11th, 2014 from cancer of the bile duct. He was 65. Mm. It's just... So all of the original members of the Ramones have now passed away at pretty young ages, and mm -hmm. only one of them was from, like, an overdose. It's just wild. Like, people wouldn't expect that. <laughs> you would think all these members die. Like, yeah, they're in a punk band. They probably overdosed or something. But nope, all cancer. Just Dee Dee. Classic Dee Dee. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Dee Dee. <laughs> For a lot of people, the Ramones are punk music. Their debut album is said to be one of the first albums in history that changed popular music forever. They created the blueprint for punk music for the next 20 years at least. In a lot of ways, they were instrumental to the indie music scene as well as the popular music scene. It's almost impossible to find a punk, hardcore, metal, or alternative rock band that wasn't influenced by them. Gene Simmons, who's from KISS, pointed out, quote, We think of the Ramones as a classic, iconic band. They have one gold record to their name. They never played arenas, couldn't sell them out. It was a failed band. It doesn't mean they weren't great. It means the masses didn't care, end quote. Towards the end, they had always hoped there would be a reunion. When Marky visited Joey in the hospital, they even talked about it. Even Johnny was thinking about it. But when Joey died, so did the Ramones. Johnny never even considered doing anything Ramones-related without him. He said, quote, In my head, it was never officially over until Joey died. There was no more Ramones without Joey. He was irreplaceable. No matter what a pain he was, he was actually the most difficult person I have ever dealt with in my life. I didn't want him to die, though. I wouldn't have wanted to play without him, no matter how I felt about him. We were in it together. Yeah, because it was all for his benefit, <laughs> is what I'm hearing. I didn't want him to die because yeah. I was getting something out of the relationship. Oh, my God. So when it happened, I was sad about the end of the Ramones. Oh, my God. <laughs> I thought I wouldn't care, and I did. So it was weird. I guess all of a sudden, I did miss him, end quote. No, because he's over here on some moral high ground. <laughs> like, yeah, I miss my mortal enemy. Like an asshole. <laughs> the, the whole reason that you, like, didn't get along was because of your bad behavior. I cannot with that man. So I'll leave this very long episode with something that Joey said in 1999 after their breakup. He had this to say about the legacy of the Ramones. Quote, The Ramones were and are a great band. When we went out there to play, the power was intense, like going to see The Who in the 60s. When I, when I put the Ramones on the stereo now, we still sound great. And that will always be there. When you need a lift, when you need a fix. End quote. That's sweet. All right. That's the Ramones. Told you it was a kind of wild story. <clears throat> we even got some hip-hop in there. We got some... Got some reality TV with Johnny stealing his girlfriend. Got a lot. How do you feel about it? How would you sum up the Ramones episode? D.D. King is an icon. <laughs> My icon. <laughs> Please He's don't start so doing near, heroin. So near perfect, except for going after a 16-year-old. Yeah. Like, he was so close. <laughs> he was so close to being an unproblematic boy. So close. I like Tommy. He's my favorite. Tommy's great. Just a lot of when them are great. When his punk career ended, he's like, I'll just start a bluegrass just band. Bluegrass? Like, <laughs> it's wild. 
All right. Any other thoughts? F Johnny. <laughs> Next time we're talking about the Sex Pistols, so you'll get a new person to dislike. I can't with these men. And that one's also weird, but in a different way. Like this had more like personal, personal dramas and stuff. That one is more just like weirdly artistic type stuff. <laughs> it's, it's strange. Okay. There's, there's manipulation in there too. Oh God. I mean that's that's the history of music. You that have the executives. That's the history of the music industry. You have executives trying to manipulate the artists to get what they want. And that's just how it goes. Alright. That's a weird way to say that. John can suck my cock. That's where you cut it. <laughs>